From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Vikram Bakru, a medical doctor, is chief operating officer at Consejo Sano, that's C-O-N-S-E-J-O-S-A-N-O, which is a healthcare technology platform for improving health outcomes in underserved populations by improving their access and their engagement in owning their health. This is just the latest of Vic Bakru's ventures in the healthcare technology space. He is a physician and a serial entrepreneur with an MBA from Wharton, class of 2009, in healthcare management, and he's an alum of my Total Leadership course from back in the day. He now serves on the board of directors for several organizations, including the Nanubai Education Foundation, that's N-A-N-U-B-H-A-I, Aspire Global Health, and an organization that had a deep impact on him, FIMRC, that's the Foundation for International Medical Relief of Children. Vic's been awarded a number of uh, important uh, recognitions recently, including the American Medical Association Foundation Excellence in Leadership Award, the George Washington University Award, a Kaiser Family Foundation grant, the Becker's Hospital Review Rising Stars in Healthcare Award, and most recently, he was named to the Wharton 40 Under 40. He is uh, an outstanding member of our alumni community, so it's a real pleasure to now ask you to get set to listen and learn about how a great young leader is making healthcare more accessible by using his entrepreneurial skills, the latest in new technology, and a passion to serve. Vic Bakru, welcome back to Work and Life. Thanks, Stu. It's an honor to be here, and you're very generous with your words. Let me tell you about all the bad things in my background. <laughs> um, in fact, your story really is fascinating. That's part of what I want our listeners to to hear about. But first, let's start with what you're doing now, so that they understand what that's about. And uh, and once we once we get a full understanding of of the work that you're presently doing, why it matters, uh, and and how listeners can learn from it, then then we'll step back and look at. Uh, all those mistakes you made along the way, uh, and 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 how you got to where you are, and, and then we'll come back and get into some depth as to what you are doing now and what it means for for listeners and how they can how they can access um, your knowledge and work that you're doing. How does that sound? That sounds great. Thanks so much. Okay, so so you work at the intersection of, of business and medicine, uh, digital health. Tell us what it, what does that mean, and what role does Consejo Sano play in that? Sure. Um, 
Consejo Sano was started about three and a half years ago by a visionary, uh, our visionary CEO, Abner Mason. Uh, he felt that there was a gap between a healthcare system designed largely for English speakers and Hispanic individuals who had a hard time just plain understanding the people caring for them. And so he wanted to start a company that would help bridge that gap, that would help allow patients to really understand what's going on in their healthcare. And the starting point was to use some physicians based in Mexico to help explain in native Spanish language what the patient had been told at the office. Why are they getting the, Why are they getting this prescription? You know, what do they need to do as next steps? Really understand uh, what they had learned, um, and and better understand what they were trying to learn. And the more lately, we build technology for doctors' offices and insurance companies that similarly help engage patients in their care. This technology allows patients to understand the care they're receiving and to ultimately improve the quality of care that they're accessing. And how does it do that? So largely, we communicate with patients through SMS and by outbound calling. SMS is... SMS is uh, text messaging, basically. So we send a message to the patient's phone. They, you know, are able to send messages back. They're able to communicate in a very convenient way. You have to remember these um, patients, people are busy. They have busy lives. They, uh, healthcare is not always the foremost thought on their mind. And so how Mm -hmm. do you adapt healthcare to meet their daily lives and Mm -hmm. and to meet the needs of, of, of of these populations that, you know, just have very limited time? Mm-hmm. So it's mostly geared towards people who speak Spanish as their first language? That's where the company started. And you know what we realized is that there are um, many cultures uh, that could benefit from this type of service. And so we've taken the framework that we designed for Spanish speakers, and we've now applied it to other languages, other cultures. So the company offers services in Arabic and Farsi and Armenian and Mandarin and Cantonese. I mean, so many languages, uh, but we don't think of them as languages. We think of them as cultures because we're not taking mm-hmm. English messages and translating them. We're designing from the ground up the type of messaging that makes the patient feel special and engaged and central to the whole process. Hmm. You know, that's part of our secret sauce is you can't just translate. That doesn't work, right? You don't, you you know, it it has to be, it has to go beyond that. So the messages come from where? Sure. So our technology platform sends these messages out on behalf of our clients. Again, these are largely doctor's offices and in health insurance companies. Okay. And so the message comes to the patient um, you know, from the clinic that they're familiar with, from the doctor mm-hmm. that's caring for them. And that's how our company operates. I see. So, so you work through doctors and insurance companies. You provide them the tools and the platform to be able to communicate and to engage their patients. In a, exactly in, a way, right. in, in a way that, that, that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's exactly right. They have wonderful people. Um, but healthcare is largely a clinician-centric profession. It's when mm-hmm. the doctor is available to see you. And frankly, the Affordable Care Act did a wonderful job of changing that entire viewpoint and making care more patient-centered. And that we're, we're just at the start of that whole process. But uh, you know, our company takes special effort to really put the patient at the center. It's when are you available to see the doctor and, and that mentality, right? That, that resonates strongly with patients these days. I can see why it would as, <laughs> as someone who has uh, you know, been processed through the healthcare system in various ways over the course of my 65 years. I'm sure most people uh, are not only appreciate but uh, are starting to demand more of that. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, uh, digital health and a lot of the work that's being done around the country in getting 
patients to have the tools and resources they need, whether it's a wearable and a hardware device or it's a software as a service that they're able to log their meals or, you know, understand their exercise regimen or how their weight is changing. All of these tools are helping to connect us to our health more easily. Mm -hmm. And the other half of the battle is the healthcare industry coming around to actually meet the patients where they are, in their homes, at their work. Telemedicine is, you know, taking off, not yet being used by every American, but, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly on, on the pathway for that to be happening. Really? So uh, by, by what year do you predict, Vic, that we'll see the uh, uh, majority of Americans getting health care through some kind of mediated device, some sort of digital or uh, video digital communication with their physician and insurance providers? Sure. When I think about technology adoption, I think of it as a 10 to 20 year horizon. This is really not an overnight change. Telemedicine, Teladoc, one of the oldest companies around, was started about over 15 years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And the bulk majority of telemedicine companies were started in the last five years. So I think we're still at the very early stages of people getting familiar, getting comfortable, even being aware that this exists as an option for them. Companies like Heal, based out of Los Angeles, that are sending doctors into people's homes in a handful of cities around the U.S., um, all of these newer approaches to receiving care, people are going to just take time to, again, get to know about and be comfortable with. So I think we're just at the early you know, stages, and it's been five years. It's, gonna, it's a generational-type effort, right? So this concept of you know, going to the doctor's office and waiting for two hours in a waiting room and having struggled to get the appointment, having had to cancel because someone was sick at home and you couldn't make your appointment, that's just not the way healthcare will function in the future. It's inefficient, and, and we can do better as a society. It's funny you mentioned in-home care as something innovative. When I grew up <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York in the 50s and 60s, our physician, our family physician, came to our house when, the, when one of us was sick. Sure, sure. That's and how I it worked. <laughs> I, I very rarely, <laughs> I didn't see many, you know, the, him in the doctor's office as often as I saw him at my own bedside. Yeah. No, I think we're going to return to that in large part. You know, as a healthcare economy, we spend $3.4 trillion on healthcare and $1.7 trillion. Fully half of all of our healthcare spend goes to 5% of patients. There's something we're not doing right. What? And Say that again. Sure. $3.4 trillion is how much we spend on healthcare in this country every year. And half of that, $1.7 trillion, is spent on just 5% of people. Of patients. Wow. That's another uh, glaring indication of the social inequality in America today, isn't it? Truly. And what are the consequences of that inequality? You know, largely one of the biggest consequences is that you end up with a huge missed opportunity to prevent medical problems from happening in the first place. Mm-hmm. When all of your investment as a healthcare system is reactive, to conditions that people develop over 10, 20, 30 years of potentially either poor choices or genetically predisposed conditions mm-hmm. or other causes of that sort, you just end up reacting. And the right answer in healthcare is absolutely to be proactive mm-hmm. on all of these various fronts. It's not about seeing the doctor when you're sick. It's about seeing the doctor or the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant and all these wonderful clinicians that we have available to us in our healthcare economy because we have a great training system. Yes. Yeah, but the it's training about, system also inculcates people in the, in the uh, physician-centric model, right? Truly. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a fair point. And I think that changes. I think we're actually seeing in the last 10 years, I think we're seeing clinicians 
uh, change their mindset. And I think a lot of these technologies and a lot of these new paradigms in care are pushing clinicians into that direction. So mm-hmm. it's organically happening already. You're mm-hmm. right. The mm-hmm. old training system might have led to that physician-centric, clinician-centric model. But most of my colleagues today that I engage with, you know, they really understand uh, a lot of the changes from yesteryear. All right, Vic, I, I have a number of other questions that I think listeners are going to be interested in hearing your answers to, uh, particularly on the subject of how how you can be more proactive and preventative uh, in, in, in really owning your health care as an American today. Uh, so let's step back now. How the heck did you get to be the COO of Consejo Sano, given where you started? You know, it's been a long path, and I uh, have been very fortunate to have a variety of experiences that I think uh, helped me understand early in my career the needs of underserved populations and how social determinants of health, how aspects of our daily lives that we don't often think too much about actually impact our health more than we realize. How did you find that? Like, how did you, what, was there an, an event that occurred or an episode or a series of events that brought that to your consciousness in a way that really shaped your, your values and your aspirations? Sure. You know, while in medical school, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, start an organization uh, that was focused on global health. That was inspired by a few professors uh, and uh, decided to work with one clinic in Central America. Um, we would raise funding and we would go and do medical missions and visit that clinic and provide support and realized early on that primary care is about continuous access, not about a group of good-hearted folks going on site for one week at a time. Um, And so we built a model of care and started to invest in that clinic and provide year-round support. And one clinic became two, became three. And as we understood the needs of the community, and we understood the struggles that folks were facing um, in these areas, uh, specifically largely Central America and throughout Latin America, actually, and then eventually into Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and, and other parts of the world, we realized that it's the daily life that determines much of our health. It's the choices we make for meals. It's whether or not we exercise. It's our access to stable income. It's our access to healthy fruits and vegetables. There are these food deserts where you just don't have access, both in the U.S. and abroad. We have them in Philly. don't have access, truly, right? I mean, there, there's, there's, there's much work to be done um, in health care that people wouldn't ordinarily think is actually part of health care. Mm-hmm. But how did you personally, because one of the reasons why I was so interested in having you back on the show is to tell more of your story about how you have discovered what's important to you and been able to pursue it, which of course is a central theme of this show, what we do in Total Leadership, uh, and and what I do in my uh, in my practice and speaking is to try to convey the the idea and give people the tools to help them see what really matters to them to be able to then shape their lives around what they care most about. How have you been able to do that? Sure. 
um, it was getting involved. It was participating. And um, as I mentioned, it was getting involved in global health, which was an area of interest. It was reading about uh, what other organizations were doing and how we could be different. Uh, there was an entrepreneurial sense uh, that certainly was, was part of that. And it was a lot of interacting with people much smarter than me and trying to understand from them what they had done, what their journeys were, basically mm. on some level what you're asking me about now. And so that's how my journey started. And then really it was just a process of uh, continuous learning. It was just committing to the fact that I wanted to always understand in an evidence-based way, I'm a scientist at heart, a physician at heart, mm-hmm. I wanted to understand what was the research that was out there. Um, you know, I'd like to touch on one example more recently that I picked mm-hmm. up on that was fascinating to me. A UCLA study just put out that in trying to help people understand, uh, well, let me say that differently. If, if people believe that autism is linked to vaccinations, the study was trying to examine if you try to explain and educate and engage a patient that autism is not related to vaccinations. There's a certain number who come away saying, okay, I believe you and I will go ahead and my child will get the vaccines. And there's a certain number that won't believe you and will sort of continue to um, do what they think is right for their family. And when you change the approach, instead of trying to convince them that autism is not linked, if you when you change the approach to mm-hmm. aligning over something that we both believe to be true, which is that measles, mumps, and rubella are diseases worth preventing. Can we agree that we don't want your child, someone I now care about, to suffer the consequences of these horrible diseases? Then the conversion rate was much greater. People hmm. understood the need to prevent horrible diseases. So what's and, the, and, what's the yeah. lesson? I'm sorry, please finish your thought no, and then I have another question. Well, no, that's fine. So the lesson there is sometimes it's just about the approach we take and the learning we can achieve by understanding what the data shows and what the science shows and what the research has been. So to me, that was, you know, keeping up on your reading, <laughs> keeping up on a weekly cadence of what's going on in the world around me, in my, in my sphere, outside my sphere, you know, that type of thing. Well, uh, so you, you've always been curious in that way about global health issues. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that something must have happened along the way earlier on that, that turned you on to the idea that this was, this was a path you wanted to pursue. Yeah, I wish I could pinpoint it, but the truth is it sort of evolved organically, and I think that's true of many people. I think that we sometimes stumble into things that fascinate us, that engage us, and sometimes you just have to stumble around a lot. Yes, for sure. <laughs> find what excites you. Well, but, and then pay attention to that, right, and not ignore the, you know, the, the spark within and be able to somehow organize your life uh, so that you can pursue it. That's often right. what you know the, the great missed opportunities that people have in their lives is when they you know something sparks their interest as this global health you know initiative in school sparked for you, but then then they don't pursue it. So you had the uh, the, the wisdom, uh, perhaps the, you know the the luck, as you say, uh, to say, well, I'm going to go further with that. I'm going to go after that because that seems like something that I could do something about. Yeah, I wish it were wisdom. I don't think it was. I think it was a lot of luck and a lot of sort of happenstance. And that doesn't, and I think creating that environment for yourself where you can benefit from all of these various interactions that you're having with the world around you, that's the lesson to take away because we all have those interactions. It's, mm-hmm. it's to your point, how do we observe those interactions and pursue the ones that are yes. meaningful to us? It doesn't have to be the right path, it just has to be committing to something beyond Netflix at night. Right. 
which so, I love, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, which, and we could talk a lot about you know what Netflix uh, shows you like to watch, and, and I could tell you some about mine, perhaps in the second half of the show. But for now, um, just if we could stay on this one one second longer, sure. Um, you know, finding you know b- being aware of those sparks and then being able to pursue them. What what has that meant for you? And and is that something that you bring to your practice? Yeah, you know, I, I think being able to anticipate. Uh, for yourself, where to guide your attention mm-hmm. is a skill that you just have to sort of cultivate. I don't think it happens naturally for most people. It certainly didn't with me. Mm-hmm. It's listening to yourself. It's uh, reflecting. I meditate every night. And, you know, being uh, it's hardly meditation. I really end up just thinking about my day. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, you know, it's that process of just reflecting and understanding what's important to me. What did I do well today? What should I have done better? You know, especially on days where I don't eat well, I'm <laughs> sort of, you know, not proud of myself at the night, at the end of the day, right? And, and so, and there are a lot of days like that, by the way. Um, but that, that process of reflection and committing, you know, to that self-improvement and, and just wanting to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be, um, I think, I think that's the process you have to sort of facilitate for yourself. Um, and there's no one that can do it for you, right? You can be inspired by others. You can be guided by others. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for your one and only life. And so you need mm-hmm. to you know, take that initiative and, and have the strength to do it. Which is, of course, what we're trying to help students do in our course. And, and you have come back to, to the class to speak about your experience along with others, uh, other alumni, and, and conveyed that message in a way that helps uh, our current students to to see to see the value of learning the the things that that we're trying to teach them in in, in my class uh, about how to attend to the things that matter and to make choices based on on what matters and and of course who matters and then to take real action to pursue uh, the things that matter most and and that's been very helpful and I'm grateful to you for doing that. Uh, let, well, so so. Tell us a little bit more about how you got from this activity that you got involved in as a, as a, as a medical student uh, to, to where you are today. If you could just give us like the, the two-minute summary of, of the, the, the stepping stones along that path, and, and then we'll get into more about you know, the nuts and bolts of what you do and how listeners can benefit from it. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the Global Health Initiative that we've been talking about is an organization called Foundation for International Medical Relief of Children, or FIMRC. And FIMRC, as we like to pronounce it, um, became a huge part of my life because I learned so much about working with other people. I learned so much about collaborative care and how to care for a community. I learned a lot about public health. Mm-hmm. And all of that drove my interest in some of the uh, things that I didn't even know existed, right, things that came later in my life. Um, largely the reason I wanted to pursue an MBA was to learn how to better manage the organization. We had founder syndrome by year seven. <laughs> it was a what situation is, Explain where, to listeners what you mean by founder syndrome. Sure. Founder syndrome is when the person who started the organization uh, has a lot of ideas, and it's just overwhelming for the organization and that poor organization's team. Mm -hmm. So you really need to almost remove yourself from the equation, and figuring out how to do that is not always straightforward. Mm -hmm. And so I came to Wharton wanting to understand not just the accounting and, you know, the finances and understand how to run an organization, but the organizational development and team building. And, you know, again, just almost emotional intelligence being sensitive to the people around you, um, that 
was an acquired skill. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, going through that process was very healthy for me. It allowed me to go into a hospital administration job at New York Presbyterian Hospital and have fantastic mentors like Dr. Anand Joshi and Dr. Laura Faris and Dr. Steve Corwin. These are consummate professionals, people who inspired me to the ends of the earth uh, to, again, become a better leader myself, to improve, um, you know, aspects of my life uh, that would allow me to relate to people and understand their needs and mm-hmm. to run a team of my own and, and do things that I did thereafter, which included a couple of different startups. Um, and so that's where, you know, from big hospital world and clinical world, I transitioned to the entrepreneurial world and came out to Silicon Valley and San Francisco in particular and worked for a telemedicine company for a few years and now found my way to Conseo Sano. So it's been an incredible journey, an educational one on, on many different levels. So how'd you get to the telemedicine world? Sure. Um, I was uh, working in New York at the time and had uh, remained connected with a fellow classmate um, and was expressing uh, my interest in moving out west. And we had coffee and brainstormed some ideas, and she had recently accepted a position at the VA. Um, And fast forward a few weeks later from that coffee chat, she was pinged by an entrepreneur. Uh, They needed a medical person for their telemedicine company. And she, like I just said, had accepted a job at the VA Mm -hmm. and wasn't available and um, passed along my information. And I got called and we hit it off and and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was a, a great venture. And, you know, that's, I think the lesson here is yes. never underestimate the value of networking. Any simple conversation you might have can turn into something more, and sometimes it's about how you cultivate that conversation in the weeks that follow. Sometimes it's about making sure people know who you are, what you're up to, what your interests are, where you want to be, where you're going. People, mm-hmm. uh, people sort of naturally want to help you uh, when you're open and transparent and authentic. That's something I learned in your course. <laughs> well, say more about that. What did you, you know, learn? Authenticity. In- Authenticity and sincerity, right? I mean, I think uh, we go through life, especially in our professional pursuits, um, often wanting to represent what we think people want to hear. And that Mm. sometimes does us a disservice. And I, I, I mean, I certainly took away from your course the need to represent my views and my, you know, my views, my thoughts in a way that was open and forthcoming and through the process of natural selection would allow people to align around me that would take us all forward Hmm. so that's what i mean by that that's that's a powerful idea i'm very glad to know that that's something that stays in your in your mind and that you're able to share (laughs) that with us um so vic let me ask if you could uh Tell us again, uh, perhaps a little bit more detail this time, what are the ways that, um, that your organization, Consejo Sano, uh, actually helps people to get access? Can, perhaps you can give us an example of what um, a, you know, a typical interaction would, would be uh, that, that someone who wouldn't otherwise have had it if not for Consejo Sano. Sure, absolutely. Happy to do so. Um, You know, when we work with our clients, which are largely doctors' offices, providers, um, and health plans, uh, we are often in the position of trying to understand from them what is their starting point? What do they do today to reach out to their patients? How do they interact? How do they make appointments available uh, for patients who might call in? What's that patient experience like when a patient calls in to make an appointment? What 
the attitude that they're getting or not getting? What's hmm. the feeling of uh, invitation that they're getting or not getting? How easy is it to make the appointment? And once they make the appointment, how does the clinic or the or the health plan help them understand next steps? So what Mm the has developed is technology that really guides the patient through all the various aspects of that experience. So from the first step of just being made aware that, hey, it's time to come in. We want to see you. You're due for a particular health screening all the way through to, would you like to make an appointment? If so, here's how we can help you do that. And once you've made the appointment, we're going to remind you a week out, two days out, and a couple hours out to make sure that you have the tools necessary to be a participant in your care. I can't tell you the number of times when in practice and in clinic we have patients who don't make it because they have sure. issues remembering that the appointment was that particular day. Sometimes mm. people just have busy lives and show up on a different day. Other times it's transportation that's the problem. They can't get to the clinic, especially when we're talking about vulnerable populations. We do a lot of work with Medicaid, Medicare, and the daily lives of these patients are hard. And when you're working hourly and getting paid hourly and don't have access to some of the conveniences of a car Mm -hmm. or other tools that help make it possible for you to do all the things you need to do to stay healthy. I can't begin to explain how much these social determinants of health impact the possibility for care. So Conseo Sano addresses those needs. We can how? organize transportation. Really? On behalf of the practice, absolutely. We can send people out to your home to help engage you there. Maybe your lab tests can't be drawn in the clinic because you can't make it to the clinic because you're working two jobs. You have three kids. You're a single parent. They're just life circumstances, and this is where the healthcare system needs to move. We need to start focusing on the needs of patients in the environments that are comfortable for them, that are convenient for them. This makes so much sense. Why isn't the entire healthcare system built around this idea? You know, it's it's a great question. (laughs) I'm I'm naive about these matters, so you'll have to explain (laughs) to me, Vic. I mean, I, I have some idea, but what's your take? Sure. Two main forces. How insurance has evolved... Mm-hmm. over time. And secondly, how electronic medical records came to be where they are today. So if you take a look at the evolution of insurance, started roughly 1920s, 1930s in our country, and over the next 20, 30, 40 years became the type of solution that was offered through work. And then we had, in the 60s, Medicare and entitlement programs, where when you turned a certain age, 65, you would get health insurance. And the way the system evolved further with insurance being provided, health insurance being provided through your work, through full-time employment, it removed the patient from being responsible Mm. for a lot of the decisions that go into choosing the parts of Hmm. accessing health care that are important. So we became more passive? We did. As As a society, we did. And I wouldn't argue it was through tremendous fault of our own. This was the system. This was sort of the way you were supposed to access care. Hmm. And if you look at then the other half of the equation, which is the clinical environment, how reimbursements were made was not connected to whether I'm encouraging you to eat healthy. Mm -hmm. It was connected to various other procedures and retroactive, reactive, I should say, measures that I could take to improve your health. And so it was almost as though we were incenting people to get sicker because that's how you got reimbursed more down the road. It wasn't a conscious choice, certainly not, right? right? 
but it was a sort of a, a, a consequence, let's call it. And then the second force was electronic medical records. It's fantastic that we've moved away from a paper-based system. This allows us access to data. It allows so many more efficiencies. Of course. But in so doing, if you look at the data, roughly 2008 timeframe, 9, 10% of hospitals were using electronic medical records. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act and the High Tech Act of 2009, we started to see grants being made available to implement electronic medical records. So $30 billion was made available by the government to hospitals wanting to build out electronic medical records for their facilities. And it cost half a trillion as an entire country to do that. We did. By 2015-16, we got to 85-90% of hospitals using electronic medical records. What's the problem? The problem was that it was entirely focused on billing systems and how you could maximize your reimbursement. It was, in many ways, not sensitive to the needs of the daily lives of the patients. When I'm taking a history and physical in the emergency room, I'm not as concerned about what you ate Mm. for the last several months as I am about checking boxes on the form that I have to fill out. And really, I I should be more concerned about what your daily life is like. Mm. I'm really going to impact your care. Now, Mm. that exact moment, arguably, if you have appendicitis, yeah, I just need to know if you ate in the last eight hours. I'm going to go to the operating room and take out your appendix or whatever. But, you know, truly, a lot of this has to do with how electronic records were implemented and came up. And we're in phase one. It's okay. We got to the point where now electronic records are distributed. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, we have some very smart people at these companies and a lot of new digital health efforts out there too yes. that are going to, through phase two, incorporate a lot of these population health components. Uh, Kansai Osano is contributing to that as well. All right. So uh, Lawrence uh, is calling. Welcome to Work and Life, Lawrence. Thank you. First, let me just state that I'm, I'm hooked on this channel. What a wonderful source of information. Ah, we're glad to have you listening, I, I really Lawrence. enjoy it. That's... Uh, my question to the doctor is, do you see sometime in the near future uh, that access to medical care for hourly people on the lower end of the wage scale, is it going to get better or worse? It, it just seems like we're pricing these people out of the market for health care. It's a great question. And yes, I think the short answer is that our entire healthcare system is starting to understand that it has to be everyone under the umbrella. You can't leave people out in the rain. And I do believe that there are some very smart people thinking about insurance differently, innovating, not necessarily the incumbent old institutions, but there are some new efforts that I'm seeing that are making strides in making care accessible. It may or may not be insurance. It might be that you still end up paying out of pocket or Mm. that you are finding a solution, a service that works for you. Telemedicine. There might be efficient ways that we can get that type of care accessible and then presumably develop catastrophic coverage that allows us to not have to fall victim to life circumstances, car accidents, and so on. Um, So yes, I do believe there's hope for the future, Lawrence. That's the short answer to your question. And I think the timeline is somewhere in the next five to seven years, which doesn't help uh, people in that situation today. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's where we have to turn to federally qualified healthcare centers and other institutions that are committed to social good. Lawrence? But do you think that this is going to happen with uh, the Republicans dismantling what Obamacare has achieved the past eight years? 
it's a tough question. And, you know, I uh, would classify myself as a supporter of the Affordable Care Act. I think it did so much good for our nation in getting the engine started on innovation, on bringing a new perspective to health care, on helping people measure and understand what direction we need to go in, mm-hmm. on understanding that lower-income households need a lot of help that they're not getting and not being able to access. So I'll, I'll leave my comments there. Um, but it's hard to predict what the future holds. I can't even tell you what next month will look like, to be frank, right? I don't think any of us can. Well, listen, thanks, thanks, Doc. I really appreciate your, uh, your opinion. Very informative show today. Thank Th- you. Thanks for calling, Lawrence. We're talking about uh, access to health care um, and uh, what it means for your life uh, and your, your career and, and all the other aspects of your life and what Dr. Vikram Bakker is doing at Consejo Sano to help bring greater access to health care for people throughout the world, uh, particularly under underserved populations. John, welcome to Work and Life. Hi, thank you. What's on your mind? Well, I am a CEO of a company called Alaska Innovative Medicine, and we're in Anchorage, Alaska. We do uh, intensive Care coordination, case management, um, very clinically centered around the patient and similar to some of the work Vic is doing with Consejo Santo. Uh, One of the challenges that we run into with working with many different uh, providers and insurers is that all these facilities are on very different technological platforms Mm -hmm. as far as managing their EMR. And I would like to get uh, some of his thoughts around how his company has sort of navigated that difficulty um, being able to provide better care coordination and continuity for the patients. Thanks, John. Uh, Vic? Absolutely. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think that the next several years will make it a lot easier as we standardize access across facilities to information. I think a lot of the work happening at the state government levels with the health exchanges is very positive, and I think that's ultimately the direction that we'll need to go in. Um, in the short term, how Conseo Sano handles it is we go through that painful process of understanding what platforms our clients, our doctor's offices and insurance companies are using, and finding ways to take that information, even if it's as simple as organizing it in a spreadsheet, transferring it securely through an SFTP process, and then making use of the information in a very HIPAA-compliant, sensitive way. So that's the, quote-unquote, straightforward solution. Uh, The more complex options, as you've noted, John, involve integrations and heavy technology, which for a Mm -hmm. small, young startup company or smaller venture in general is hard to do. It's hard to do that across multiple clients. So you have to innovate. You have to think, you know, sort of outside the fishbowl, as I like to say. Um, But I'm curious if there's any follow-up or any other questions that may have uh, come up as I was, you know, sort of telling you what you already knew, which is this is really hard to do. (laughs) Yeah, you you absolutely think hit it right on the head there. Um, it's, it's been a real challenge for us. Um, and we are, I think, making progress with as far as getting, as you said, from the, the state legislative perspective, um, trying to bring everyone on board. Um, you know, one of, uh, be interested to, you know, if we're willing to share, um, you know, any sort of, uh, without giving any direct endorsements of technological platforms or any kind of analytics that Conseil Sano is able to run to be able to um, 
determine that you are having this. You know, what I'm going to jump in here. Yes. John, I'm going to jump in here and ask that uh, you talk to our producer, give us your contact information, and we'll, we'll connect you to Vikram. And, and you can, because that's a technical question that probably not a lot of people listening are going to have all that much interest in, but something that you two could benefit from talking about. So I'm going to ask you to connect offline. Um, and uh, and look forward to hearing what happens when you do. Um, I hope that works for you, John. Yes, I would absolutely love. Great, it. thank you for the opportunity. It's been a fantastic sure. interview so far. Yeah, George, uh, welcome to Work and Life. What's on your mind? Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the program. Uh, it's uh, it's very interesting and certainly a topic that applies to each and every one of us uh, who is either. <laughs> you know, forced to or does participate in the system. I live out west. Uh-huh. I've lived out west forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. And at one time, I lived on private land in, in Arizona where there was reservation, national forest, this way, this way. There wasn't a health care provider within 400 miles wow. of anyone's front door. Wow. And, and that's very typical in, in Arizona where mm-hmm. there's reservation land or things. It seems to me it's much more of a logistics problem, however, and people like uh, Kellogg, Pew, other organizations seem to be uh, saying, well, access to care is the problem. We need to get mid-level providers or dumb down from physicians and DOs into nurse practitioners or less health aid therapists or other people. And the Native populations that I talk to are very upset with this. They're, they're saying, well, we don't want cheaper, lesser care. We'd like to have access to high-quality care, but we don't have access. Yeah. We don't have transportation. We don't have cars to get us, even in Bureau of Indian Affairs lands. One other comment, and I'll look for your comment, is that people are doing things like dentistry in Mexico, where they go down, they won't drink the water in the restaurant, but they will have a surgical extraction of a tooth, putting water <laughs> you know, in a tooth. I mean, it, it, it seems wow. ludicrous to me where they say it's an access-to-care issue, where it seems to me to be more logistics, transportation, telemedicine, and the law. And I'd be interested to see how, what your opinion is about or how things can happen in larger geographical areas where logistics yeah. seems to be the problem. Great question. Thank you, George. Yeah, it is a great question. And I think nowhere uh, more than, you know, in your example is the role of telemedicine to at least get that uh, that access to guidance and information about what should I do next? Should I actually drive 400 miles to get to a facility? Or, you know, am I okay to wait it out overnight and go in the morning or what have you, right? That's where I think the role of getting a clinician, uh, you know, through a phone at the minimum or video chat if there's local internet bandwidth that'll support it and if the person mm-hmm. subscribes to that, right? So there are factors here that may be outside of our control um, in the short term and being able to offer that, you know, level of access. Um, I do want to touch on one point that you made, um, which is, I have to tell you, I've worked with a tremendous number of skilled nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and I have so much respect for the skills that they bring to the table. And I I, I always find it unfortunate when... um, patients of mine or others, you know, perceive, uh, including people in my family sometimes. So this is, this is not a unique view per se, um, but they view it as an inferior level of um, access to care. And in many ways, it's actually better. You actually get 
better attention, more mm -hmm. thorough histories. You get a lot more, I think, in interacting with a diverse array of clinicians that I think, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of call that out and, and mention that, that, you know, I, I, that may or may not be your individual view. I know you referenced that, you know, people that you've interacted with, but I, I do want to reinforce for, for you and maybe for listeners out there that, um, you know, please keep an open mind because uh, mm -hmm. there are many, many ways uh, to get point. access to care and, and, you know, doctors aren't the only resource, even though I obviously am part of that group um, and, 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 and love being in touch, you know, on that front. Um, I find that there are many, many uh, types of clinicians that can be very, very helpful and, and do fantastic work. George, thank you so much for calling. Really appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Uh, so, Vic, we're, we're, we just have another minute or so here. Um, and you, you've offered so much wisdom uh, to our listeners, so thank you for, for being here. But before we, before we sign off, what do you want our listeners to know about how they can uh, become more active in, in controlling their health care and especially how that can help them in their working lives uh, sure. and, in the, and in the rest of their lives? Sure. Health, keeping health is a routine. It has to be a weekly effort. Something that I do with my family is every week we go through what were the health events of the week? Who slipped? Who fell? Who had a scratch? Who has a toothache? Who has other issues going on? And if you get into that habit at a family level, even if it's just yourself, if you mm -hmm. live alone and it's just you at home, it's a weekly reconciliation process. You just have to reflect. Like everything else in life, it takes time and attention to just do that for not more than two to five minutes. That's hmm. all it takes. But when you keep that on your radar and then you make a note that, oh, okay, I've got to go make an appointment for this or I've got to do this, that's where you become part of the actual process of leading yourself into better health. And so my advice to you know everyone that I encounter really is, Make it a weekly process. 52 times a year, you need to be thinking about your health and what you're going to do differently the week ahead, mm -hmm. and, you know, what you could have done better the week before. It's, it's really just that, that process that I would encourage people to follow. That is great advice, and it's certainly, it's certainly something that anybody can do, right? I think so, and from anywhere. That's what, you know, is, mm -hmm. I think, the most important part is that you don't have to have a special carpet in a special part of your house and, right. and, and sit in a special position. This <laughs> is while you're driving to Starbucks or whatever place, you know, to get your morning kick. This is just, you know, a couple minutes. What am I doing on the health front? Just make it part of your daily, you know, your weekly daily life if you want. But, yeah, you know, for those more fitness-oriented, it ends up being a daily effort. But, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, regular, you know, routine, that's the key. Just making it a practice to be conscious of health, events and and what you can do to be advancing your health and the the health of the people right around you and just to make that a regular part of your conversation that's that's just wonderful advice dr vic bacher thank you so much for being a part of this show tonight and for being a part of the the total leadership and wharton alumni community we're really proud of you it's a real pleasure to be here Stu, and you're an inspiration thank you so much for having me Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the amazing Wharton alum, Vikram Bakru, and that you got some ideas about how you can take greater control of your health and think what it means for us as a society to be a more patient-centered healthcare environment. So here is my, my invitation to you, a challenge for you this next week or two or three, how about if you do exactly what Vic suggested, and that is on a weekly basis at a time that makes the most sense for you, 
could be Wednesday morning, Friday afternoon, Sunday night, whenever, to do just a really quick check-in with yourself about how your body is feeling and what you need to do to make minor adjustments in your life or perhaps set up an appointment with a healthcare provider. Simple. A quick check-in on a regular basis, weekly. That's going to make you more proactive in seeking the help that you need and you'll have a greater sense of ownership of your health and what you need to do to maintain it, your most precious asset. So what do you discover if you do indeed start to do this weekly check-in? What do you learn? Does it make you happier, more energized? Do you feel a greater sense of control, perhaps less stress? I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at Stu Friedman, which is Friedman at Wharton, .upenn.edu or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas for guests who would be interesting and fruitful for us to have on the show, just write to me. Again, Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu with your suggestions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, TotalLeadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.